One of the things that you have to be aware of is since moving into this facility almost uh, 16 months ago, we have a, a wave of new people who have jumped in, who become a part of us, but maybe not fully aware of the process of how we got here. And if you are an old-timer, you know the story and you're going to somewhat hear it again. If you're a relatively new-timer, um, uh, and I just want you to know I, I hope this helps you as well as takes us into God's Word together. And if you're a one-timer, because uh, <clears throat> uh, you're here as a friend or a visitor, but you don't live here, or this will not be the church that you get involved in, uh, this might be something that you take back to your church, because I don't hear it preached very often. And, and it's this. For the rest of my life, I will consider the last six years here at Bergen Park Church as one of the highlights of my life because I experienced something that you don't always experience and you may not have experienced in your churches. And that's the unity of the body of Christ heading towards a project that was bigger than itself. And we've now accomplished that, but those years of getting there were amazing to me Here's how it happened. 2009, we realized that in our current facility back there, uh, we cannot accomplish the ministry that we want to accomplish in this community. And we have 20 things that we believe need to happen to our facility so that we can do that ministry. Among those were more than one male toilet and one female toilet. (laughs) We're practical here. We know what ministry is, okay? But there were 20 things, and in this facility, uh, or in that facility, we realized it wouldn't happen. So we planned to do an addition to that facility, more toilets, more everything. And we work along that process, and then suddenly in October of 2010, um, you know, this process started in 2009, so in October of 2010, we keep those priorities, but we change the locations we'll accomplish it in. And one of the ways that God told us to move ahead was we raised the purchase price in pledges to be given within the next several weeks. We raised that purchase price minus $15,000 in an hour. The people were eager to give. And uh, uh, what what got me is I wrote down how much I was willing to give. And uh, I said, (laughs) we don't have a chance, okay? You know, this is what I'm able to give, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be much bigger than that. And I counted about 30 people out there. And yet when the pledges were, were added up, we were only $15,000 short, and I know some people that were for it but couldn't be there that week. So over then, the next uh, four-plus years, a series of teams formed. Uh, and the issue was these teams had specific assignments that they were to do. And we saw that each of these teams and each congregational meeting that we had over those next years, the answer was, I mean, the response of the congregation was always, giddy up, please, let's get this done, let's keep moving. And government slowed us down, uh, architects slowed us, you know, everything takes longer than we expect. But at the end of those four plus years, we together got this dream done. And I will remember it as a season of unity like I've experienced only two or three times in uh, 40 years of ministry. 
Each team that was that formed realized it was involved in something bigger than itself. It wasn't just getting its job done, but it was coordinating everything together. And I want to say this. In, in that period of time, there were no miracles. Uh, I didn't walk on water. Not once. Um, there wasn't, uh, nobody won the lottery and gave to pay off the bill. And none of the, there were no massive miracles to get it done. But we had a lot of little encouragements letting us know that God was in it. And those encouragements kept coming and coming and coming. Every April, um, I, in my one-year Bible, am reading through the books of Joshua and Judges. And as I was reading this year and reflecting back on the last six years uh, at Bergen Park Church, I noticed some parallels that were amazing to me. And I want to share with you this week, but also two weeks from now. uh, I'm not here. uh, I'm not preaching next week, but two weeks from now, I want to share those parallels that we'll see in Joshua and Judges. And I want to do it so that you would understand uh, one of the signs that God is at work. And I realize this can be misused, but one of the signs that God is at work is that when his people are unified, that they are able to accomplish something they could never do alone. And God uses often the unity of his people to get things done that are bigger than every individual or every team. So I want to take you into into Joshua this morning. And believe it or not, I'm going to do all 24 chapters in about 20 more minutes. Uh, So obviously I won't be reading it word for word. But as I take take you into it, uh, you know, the most important conviction that comes out of this is that God tells his people what he wants them to do. And the conviction that when God says, this is what I want you to do, and they go about doing it, it's sort of like that great phrase from the movie back in the 80s called the Blues Brothers. These two ex-cons get out of jail and they somehow get involved in a project bigger than themselves. You know, they're, they're saving a, a school or something uh, for, for the nuns who probably beat them all the way through school. But but they everywhere they go, they use this phrase. We're on a mission from God. Chicago, okay, where God is God. Uh, we're on a mission from God. And so it is that the people of God now are on a mission of God as we enter the book of Joshua. And it begins with, what is this mission? And I read from Joshua chapter 1, and I'm in verses 2 and 3. And it says, uh, Moses, my servant, is dead. Good way to begin, huh? Uh, The Lord is speaking to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. So that's the mission. They are confident that this is what God wants. They know that if they trust God, that they can move ahead. And many of you remember that great hymn, Trust and Obey. The word trust is there for a reason. You can obey and say, I really don't want to do this. But when you trust and obey, what you're saying is, I believe that God is in this. And because God is in this, I'm willing to obey him in what he reads to me and what he tells me to do. Now, you got to admit that the wording that God uses with Joshua is just a little bit brutal. Moses is dead. He's gone. You leave. Take Canaan. Goodbye. 
It's very short, very much to the point. But in that also is a vision that is bigger than Joshua. And so from this, we understand that from the time of, of Abraham, God has promised to the Hebrews that they would inherit Canaan, but they were never big enough. So they, they immigrate to uh, Egypt during a famine. God causes them to grow in numbers until they're in the millions. And now the mission is, now that you're no longer slaves, what I want you to do is to become uh, the possessors of this land. There's only one problem. The current occupants aren't ready to give it to you. It will be a fight. But understand this, even though you're not trained soldiers, neither are you slaves of Egypt, and neither do I want you to remain nomads in, in the desert wilderness. This is your land. You're to occupy it. Cross the Jordan. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, about three-quarters of the battle of knowing what, you know, of, of obeying God is knowing that this is what God wants. I have to first become convinced before I get into action. I need this, this certainty that what I am doing is what God has told me to do. And may I confess that when we shifted from doing the addition in that old uh, facility to moving here, among the most reluctant to make that change was me. Think about this, would you? I and several others had been on this property for years. And here was our prayer. Lord, this property was originally designed to be a church. It was part of the whole uh, Rocky Mountain Village Retirement Center. And right now it's vacant because that project was not done. And what I want to pray is that somehow, some way. You would let Bergen Park Church, or first of all, you'd let it be a church on this property as originally designed and not a Denny's. And then finally, if it's possible, we'd like it to be Bergen. I'd like it to be Bergen Park Church. So the time comes, and it's, you know, suddenly we say, we'd like this to be Bergen Park Church. And who's the most reluctant? The one who prayed the most. I find that, again, Three-quarters of the battle is knowing what God wants you to do. And even though I had prayed this, obviously I got from here to here, never. Uh, I, you know, I prayed bigger than I believed. But buying and building here, you know, who was reluctant? Who said, hey, this is, you know, this is going to cost me more time. This is going to cost me more energy. It's definitely going to cost me more energy, uh, more money. And I'm not sure I want to do this. This is what it's like to have a mission from God. Now, Understand that usually then when the mission comes, then what we look for are the best equipped people. So the idea was there to cross the Jordan. And when they crossed the Jordan, what was to happen is they were to uh, be engaged with all the other tribes and expel them and push them out so they could take it. So what you think is what we need are good military tactics, good military weapons. But God says, no. Your success will be judged or be rewarded or not rewarded according to how you adhere to my word. Joshua 1, 8 and 9, this book of the law shall not depart out of your, depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night. Being careful to do all that it says, for then you will be prosperous and then you will have success. That's the way I memorized it. Uh, 
So, you know, the, the big weapon that Joshua has is not an army, even though they've never fought, of like 600,000 males. And, and the big weapon that Joshua has is not the, the weaponry, which they don't have. The big weapon is not chariots. The big weapon they have is the word of God. I know some of you say, and pastors always beat me on the head with it, right? Uh, no, this is what he has. He has the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, what was written by Moses, and now he says, the, God tells to uh, uh, tells to Joshua, the way you're going to get there, the way you're going to possess it, the way the mission will be accomplished, is, is according to your alignment and adherence to what Moses wrote. You do not obey, and you will lose. And you know what they found out when they went into the land? That when they did not obey, they lost. Amazing. Who would have dreamed that? But when Joshua and all the people were aligned with God's word, they moved ahead. You know, I have, uh, I have found that uh, when God does give me commands, and often they come most often from his word, that when I do them as I read them, that he rewards when I do it. And I've also discovered that uh, there's often more one, more than one way to accomplish what God wants done. But the ultimate goal is what has to be kept in mind. So finally, the issue is, well, am I going to do it? Not how am I going to do it, but am I going to do it? And is not doing it an option? I love hanging around the people of God who are most comfortable when, when they say, you know, I think God is telling me to do this. And because they've read it in God's word, I love hanging around those people who have a desire to obey God. And I hope they're among your best friends too. So that the mission for the Christian church and the mission for the Hebrews was it was always conditioned by God's word. And, and then God gives this little sense of encouragement with two huge miracles. Now, the book of Joshua is not filled with a lot of miracles, just a small handful. But two of them are really big, just not as big as he had done before. Let me explain. It's a mission confirmed by God's power. So first they have to cross the the Jordan River, and here's what happens in chapter 3. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Uh, the Jordan, it was springtime, it was flood season, it was you know, probably going over the banks. The Jordan was a, a, a hindrance. Uh, and uh, God has to step in and change that hindrance. It says that up 25 miles north, uh, upstream from where they were crossing, that the, the, the walls of, of, uh, of the Jordan River just built. Now... Listen to this, uh, because uh, Tim Riley got me on this quite a while ago. It's called the Archaeological Study Bible. And not only is it worth reading, but then when you lose your weights, you know, you can do stuff like that with it. Um, but he got me onto that. And, uh, and, and you read in there about what they've discovered in terms of archaeology of this time and this region. And they have recorded six times... In recorded history, the last one being 1927, there was an earthquake near a place called Adam where the water was supposed to uh, uh, be piling up. There was an earthquake. 
And it was known, that region is known to have a steep canyon with with very steep walls. And in 1927, an earthquake caused the Jordan River to be dammed up for 21 hours. And what got it to be undammed was an aftershock. And he just opened it up again. Now, God doesn't need an earthquake. He might have done it another way. But what is recorded is God steps in. And not only does he step in, he steps in so the Jordan is crossed, nobody is lost, and they walk across on dry land with the priest holding the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle. The next miracle in which God steps in is when the Jericho walls collapse. And again, in in the Archaeological Study Bible, they describe that as they dug up old Jericho, it's called Jericho 4, that they found that the first uh, uh, several feet of the walls of Jericho were stone, huge stones. But they built at least two or three times higher mud bricks. And so, you know, in an earthquake, the stones will probably stay there. But what happens to mud bricks? I know I lived in California. I know what happens to stucco. I know what happens to drywall. I know what happens to concrete. I know what happens. They come tumbling down. So there's no, you know, we we cannot prove that it was another earthquake, but we do know this, that they did find that the mud bricks had collapsed. And as they collapsed, it formed like a ramp that people could walk up over the stone walls and into the city. Did it happen that way? We don't know, but it happened once that way. So God has stepped in, and he steps in, And what he promises uh, actually occurs, and the people go around telling the story. We got into Jericho. You know what our weapons were? Trumpets and loud voices. It's like saying the way we got into um, the way we got into um, uh, Bronco Stadium was we brought a really loud, loud rock band, and we just said. Let it all out. And suddenly the whole stadium opened up and we could just walk right in. Things don't collapse with just a loud shout or trumpets. And I, I want to say this. Uh, you probably, and if you don't, be, be, be ready because every once in a while, not because it's a huge thing, but because it's a small thing, you realize that God steps in. It's not as dramatic as a wall falling down. It's not as dramatic as the Red Sea opening or crossing the Jordan on dry ground. <clears throat> but every once in a while, God steps in. And when you have that, you just got to tell people what God has done. More than that, you want to tell it to the next generation so they'll remember that God is alive and active. And and more than that, what you're praying for is, Lord, before my time comes, you know, Please, just before I, I come to be with you, you got any more God things that you can do in my life? I love it when you step in. And yet, as you look at it, even though God stepped in twice, the whole campaign that probably takes several decades, the whole campaign, most of it is accomplished in the usual way. They surround a city. They, you know, penetrate the city. They expel the, the, the all the current settlers. And, and more than that, and, and then they take over, and, and they, uh, f- you know, they move into the city. And when they move into the city, then they go on to the next city. And this happens both in the north and in the south and, until the land is predominantly theirs. That's how it usually happens. Now, 
very crucial to this is to understand that in that campaign, the entire nation kept together. The entire nation, all 12 tribes, actually uh, 13 tribes, but um, and, and here's how it happens. Three of the tribes, Simeon, Issachar, and, um, uh, and, and, and Ephraim, uh, three of these tribes... They have said, we like the land on the other side, the east side of the Jordan. So we'd like to stay there, but we will fight with you until the war is over. That meant decades of commitment. So certain tribes also, their, you know, the region that they were to conquer, uh, the region that they would settle in, it's conquered first, but they have to stay with the rest of the nation until it's done. So the army stays together until the battle is won. And what they understand is that these three tribes are probably giving far more than the other nine. More than that, you know, they're, they're setting aside their time. They're setting aside decades of their life. They're risking their lives for land that they will not occupy. Here the understanding is it's God's mission for all of his people to accomplish, not just those who will benefit most. And that is where I want to sort of bring us together this morning, that whether you are an old-timer, a new-timer, or a one-timer, understanding that God, one of the ways that you know he's at work is he's bringing his people together and he keeps them together. And let's be honest, here in Evergreen, that's a class three miracle out of ten. It is, because we are filled with self-interest. And I don't mean that's always a bad thing. You're to take care of yourself. But it is a near miracle in itself when by default our nature is to be self-centered. Well, let me take that forward to having you understand the parallels. Now, those of you who are not a part of Bergen Park Church, this may be new to you, but consider your church and the church you're in right now. How do we tie that in with the mission of Bergen Park Church? Well, we say that our mission is to honor God, or we're honoring God as we build up families, serve our community, and share the love of Jesus with the world. And so that is what we believe God has given us as our common mission. And it begins with the desire to honor him. In other words, if we are blessed, who gets the honor? We honor him and not ourselves. Our mission is to make God look very real, very much alive, very powerful, and very good to those who do not yet trust him. And the evidence we want is families that are being strengthened as you worship here and and are nurtured here in the faith. Now, I want to say this. I know families who are without God in their lives who are doing quite well. And I know families who are following Jesus who are struggling. But family units represented here, even if, you know, even if you're the only one from your family unit here, we desire that your time here, your home would be strengthened as you follow Christ. We want to also serve our community. And individually, we want to share Jesus' love with the world. So this is a mission that we think is worth working on. And and to do that, we've listed several core values. And one of those is come as you are. We understand we're not perfect and we do not expect you to be perfect also. I cannot list for you the different denominations that you grew up. I've forgotten them. There are so many, and some of you invented some, let's face it. (laughs) 
you started your own denomination because I've never heard of it before. So, you know, I, I can't keep up. But we are definitely not a homogeneous group in terms of our spiritual backgrounds. We are not either strongly denominational in this association of churches, which may make you wonder how things actually get done here. Uh, we don't have a, a one way to do it only. And sometimes things are being done, and I, I don't even know what's going on. And that's a good thing. Um, we also uh, understand that this church is made up of people of different economic and educational backgrounds. Uh, some of us are privileged and some of us are underprivileged. Some of us come from great homes. Some of us come from broken homes. Some of us can, you know, have several uh, measurements of success and others of us have several measurements of failure. But we come to the same God who has the power to heal us and to use us as the people of God together and a people of God who can bring deep influence on our mission. We don't have a, a whole lot of miracles we point to. But believe me, we have a long list of dedicated soldiers on this mission. And I invite you to make this your church, but see it also as being in this mission. And understanding that you can get more done together than you could ever get done on your own. We also have another core value, which we call being an intergenerational ministry. You see it in Katie and Gerda giving announcements. You'll see it in those who serve communion this morning. Uh, it'll be all age groups, and we say that in our intergenerational community, every age and every stage has a vital contribution to make in this community. But it also means something else, because every generation has certain ways that it does things. I come from the most sinful generation America ever produced, called the baby boomers. Not proud of it, but but that's who we are, okay? Also the most self-centered. Um, and over the years, we've developed ways of doing things that I'm not proud of. Well, it doesn't make you any better. It doesn't make you any worse. But one thing I can promise, no matter what generation you're from, you will not get all you want. Being in an intergenerational community means that you have some level of dissatisfaction. But you also have a contribution you can make. For as long as you are here. And I hope that you can both identify what that contribution is. And, and more than that, you can measure how it's helping others, uh, you know, the lives of others within this community. And, and, and I hope that you understand that your generation has much to give, but it also has much to gain in being in an intergenerational community. And when you consider the, what part your contribution might be or how much you know, you're going to participate, one of the measurements you should have is that also how much from my background, from my age group, from my uh, church background, from, uh, from my... How much am I willing to let go? How much am I willing to measure and say it's not as important maybe as it used to be? Why do I say that? Because Jesus is measured in his glory by how much glory he laid aside. And we will find ourselves laying aside whatever it is that we considered, you might say, holy cows or, 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 or treasured practices. 
Last week, I, I was asked to respond to a person uh, who wrote me a very um, a wonderful note, but a note with some concerns. And I just shared that as I look back, when I became a Christian in 1966 or 1965, I can trace through eight worship waves that have gone through the church, and there's probably more. I can, I can, you know, they, they did it this way, and then they did it this way, and the lady who wrote me the note was about my age, so I, I said, maybe you can identify with some of these. Uh, we have changed worship styles. That means every five to eight years, something new comes about. I'm just looking forward to what's next. I also treasure what's gone. But I wonder, I mean, not only could I be a very rich man if I knew what was next and I had any musical talent, neither of which I have, okay, but I'm just wondering what's next. And I remember as a youth minister in Sydney, Australia, uh, sitting with the youth groups, we had four or five of them at the time, and sitting with the youth groups and trying to convince them that what was going on in the worship service with a prayer book, with kneeling, with standing, but never raise your hands, okay? But doing all of that from the past had relevance to their lives today. And then I also try to encourage them, and then we get together just in our own age group, that, that we can do everything that's current and not from 1776. It was a hard sell. And it's still a hard sell. But... As a, you know, and now here as a senior pastor, and by the way, don't get that mixed up with pastor to seniors. I'm not there yet, okay? As a senior pastor, I help mature people learn how to sing a new song. Listen, there's no Christian music, no translation of the Bible, no design of a church building, no style of dress, no way to give money, no popular teacher of the Bible uh, who should be doing anything but bringing us together under the headship of Christ in his church. That is what our great God desires, and that is what our great God honors. And it is worthy of the preferences that we think we have, but now we're willing to let go. Uh, Now that we've completed our facility and we're occupying it, the idea may be that we can rest and tend to our needs. And some of you gave up much in terms of meeting your own needs to get us here. But the real issue is what is the mission of God? That doesn't mean deny your needs, but it does mean stay involved in the mission of God because it has enough value to be rewarded by God, and you want all the rewards you can get. Competing in the Rio Olympics uh, this uh, these next two weeks is a lady by the name of Claressa Shields. I read about her in uh, World Magazine. Claressa Shields, her event is women's middleweight boxing. Do not mess with this lady. Okay? You want her on your side. You don't want to be an opponent. Uh, Claressa grew up in a poor family in Flint, Michigan, and she only knew her father as a convict. Her mother's boyfriends sexually abused her. So at the age of 11, she learns to box. It would not be good to be one of her mother's boyfriends. 
She comes to Christ. She follows Jesus Christ. She's baptized at the age of 13. And through a local church, she's counseled that it's time to leave her home and go into a Christian home. In 2012, when she was just 17, she wins the gold medal for women's boxing of her of her weight class. Now, NBC won't tell you this because they love stories of overcoming when they do their, you know, their, their overcoming profiles of athletes. But Clarissa, uh, <clears throat> before every bout, she stops and she prays to God. She is always talking about God's plan for her life, knowing that boxing won't be it forever. And every time she's interviewed, she always says, all glory to God. Her before and after story is our mission, isn't it? Our mission is not the facilities. Our mission is the souls of men and women. Her mission, our mission, must now and always be to make sure that our promised land is not a location, but our promised land is the souls of people who desperately need to be introduced to God. Not everyone will be as dramatic as her. It's okay. But everyone should be able to, to know that they are being prayed for, that Christians are engaging in their lives, that they're inviting them, they're loving them, they're sharing their faith with them for the purpose of winning them into God's kingdom. That is what it means to share Jesus' love with the world. And we do it through come as you are. We do not want a membership card for you to get in. And we do it by saying we're an intergenerational community. And we will unite and remain one over those things that matter to God. And try as best as we can to sort out those things that don't matter. Doesn't mean you don't have to dislike them. It means they take less weight. Let's pray. It was Jesus who prayed the night before he went to his cross in John chapter 17. His great prayer for the church that would continue after he went home to be with the Father. His Father, I pray that they might all be one. Thou and me and I and them, that the world will know that you sent me. Being a body, a family, says something to the community around us. Being a community, rather than being stressed by disunity, says something to the mountain area we live in. Lord, we understand that. And we also know that the unity is shown by what Jesus also said in John 13. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you break the mold and love one another. Apparently that's not common in Jesus' time. It's not common now. So 
Lord, we just pray. Give us something to think about. Give us something to pray about as we go home. Help us understand the mission that we're on. The people that we're in the mission with. And most of all, the prize. The prize. Clarissa Shields and multitudes of others. That's worthy of a goal. Thank you in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.